The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. I'm Rush McApadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money, Why Retirees Should Rethink the 4% Rule. Today with me is David Blanchett, Managing Director and Head of Retirement Research for PGM DC Solutions. Welcome, David. Great to be here. So this is a hot topic that you and I, I feel, have discussed for years, but it, it does seem to be even more timely as sort of the market is in your highs and we are seeing inflationary pressures that we haven't really seen in a couple decades. So maybe let's just start a little bit with this, you know, 4% rule. I think it's sort of, you know, in the zeitgeist, um, but there are a lot of assumptions built into that 4% rule. So can we just talk a little bit about some of the things that were built into that that people may not realize? Sure. So yeah, I think that I think safe withdrawal rates is like the hottest topic all the time for the last decade. Um, so you know, the four percent rule are really almost most research on retirement withdrawal amounts or rates is used kind of a, a fixed set of assumptions. So like the four percent rule um, is largely credited to like Bill Bengen came out um, almost thirty years ago, um, and it, it assumes that retirement lasts for thirty years. And you take out um, an initial percentage, so four percent. And then that amount is increased every year for 30 years by inflation. Um, and then uh, success is defined as did you accomplish your goal? Um, and failure is defined as if you didn't accomplish the goal. And what's important is that even if you fall, fall like a dollar short, um, it still considers you as, as not accomplishing your goal. Mm, interesting. And it's also sort of set for like a 65 year old heterosexual couple. It's got sort of the historical market returns and inflation assumptions. So talk to me a little bit about um, market. Mar let's, you know, the market assumptions, really, right? We've come through this amazing bull market, um, but that is not necessarily great for people who are retiring sort of in the next couple of years. Just talk me through some of those assumptions that we need to kind of rethink. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of, I mean, so again, you know, people kind of knock it, but I, you know, I just hope that someone's talking about my research 30 years from now, you know, still. Um, and I think that, I mean, like, like the assumptions aren't, aren't, aren't wrong for what he was trying to kind of provide perspective on. But I think sure. that, that, you know, the, the context is important because, I mean, retirement is like the most expensive purchase you're ever going to make, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it can cost a million dollars plus. And so like, you know, understanding how, the assumptions as that model differ for you as an individual, it's just really important, right? So, you know, you mentioned like returns. And so, you know, a lot of research and a lot of financial planners today, they use historical long-term average returns to figure out what someone should be doing. Well, like that's kind of nuts, right? Because if you think about it, you know, the, the average yield on 10-year government bonds is about 5%. It's like 1.5% today. So, you know, off the bat, your return should be at least 3% or 300 basis points lower than they have been historically. And, you know, obviously, if you if you update that kind of analysis with lower expected returns, it can really reduce the kind of estimated uh, safe initial withdrawal rate. Yeah. So, how, I mean, let's just put that into perspective. So, I mean, how what were the sort of the long term historical market returns um, over the last 20 to 30 years and, and where what are we looking at now? 
Well, so most of the research uses what's called the the the, the Ibbotson stocks, bonds, bills, and inflation data going back to 1926. Um, and over that time period, um, you know, stocks averaged about a 12% arithmetic return, and bonds were north of 5%. And so, um, you know, and I think why that's so important is if you look at really anyone today that that creates what are called capital market assumptions or CMAs. Um, they are a heck of a lot lower than that right now, just given where kind of rates are in the market is. I mean, to your point, the markets have been spectacular the last like 13 or 14 years. And I don't think it's realistic to assume the markets go up forever. I, I wish they would, but I think it's really important to kind of use different expectations looking forward than using pure historical returns, given where we are right now with valuations. And everything. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, and, and so we talk a lot about sort of sequence of returns, right? Um, and, and so how how important those first couple of years in retirement are. So if you then put that against sort of the backdrop where the market is in terms of valuations, I mean, what are some of the things that people need to think about as they think about that safe withdrawal rate to begin with? I mean, to your point, like the, you know, the returns you experience when you first retire, which is when your balance is the largest kind of ish, right, are, are like super important. And so I think it's really important for retirees like today to kind of say, hey, you know, what does it mean for me if we do have another 30% drop in the market or if we do have some kind of, you know, prolonged bad thing? And I think that like right now it's it's just really important for investors to be to have balanced portfolios, to not have maybe in too much in, you know, quote unquote, what do you call like safe assets, like too mm -hmm. much cash. If you invest in cash today, you're going to earn nothing. Um, it's going to be a negative return after inflation. Um, if you invest in long duration bonds um, to kind of get some yield and interest rates increase, that, that'll have a large negative return. Um, I think I think the stock market's pretty expensive. And so I think that you have you have to stay invested. I just think today more than ever, though, it really it really pays to be diversified. Yeah. So let's just go for one second back to Bill's um, initial rule. And so the allocation for that was 60-40, uh, 50-50. What was sort of the allocation that was assumed in that? In that Balance portfolio. Call it 50-50. Okay. Okay. So today, given what you just said, how should people be thinking about their balanced portfolio differently? So I think that I think that one thing is I still think that balanced portfolios make a lot of sense, right? I think that that you know his research looked at at you know it was it was effectively U.S. stocks and and U.S. government bonds. Right. So I think that you know again you know it's 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 it, everyone's different, but I think that you really need to be diversified right now when it comes to equities. Um, don't just hold U.S. stocks. I know they've done a a really good job recently, but I think it it makes a lot of sense to have you know, U.S. small caps, U.S. large caps, international, um, just a whole host of stuff, right? Yeah. And then, you know, on the fixed income side, I would really shy away from, you know, longer duration and riskier bonds. So I would not have high yield. I know the yields are attractive there. I would I would avoid long duration because what you really want to have right now, especially for your, your fixed income assets, is 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 safe investments whereby if the market does drop you could possibly use those to you know become more aggressive but also you can use those monies to fund your retirement i think that that what we're seeing more of now is retirees investing their kind of their fixed income monies in riskier asset classes and the problem with that right is that is that you want your your safe assets to do well or at least not lose value when the markets go down um, th there's a very real possibility if the markets go down and you have a you know risky fixed income that could go down just as much or more 
um, than your equity end. Yeah. And I think the conundrum for a lot of people, and, and I know we've talked about this too, is, is the inflation picture, right? And so um, those safe assets or the safe, relatively safe assets are really not giving them much. So it sounds to me like you're saying that they should really be more as a ballast versus necessarily income generation at this point. Definitely. Time. I mean, I think you're just, you're, you're not going to get a lot of income today off of off of lower duration, higher quality assets, but but they're supposed to be your, you know your 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 safe portion, so that's okay. Okay, okay. Well, I, I want to remind the audience to submit questions in the Q and A section, and we'll try to get to them. Um, so you know, I think that one of the um, the things that you and I have talked about is sort of the buckets that you have, um, you know, whether it's pension or social security, and how that sort of affects the the withdrawal rate. You know, so. Um, I, and there's one question from Ted, for example, asking about, does the amount of liquid assets have bearing on sort of the desired drawdown level? So help help us talk through some of that. Yeah, so one of the most important things that affects like how much you should withdraw from your portfolio is, is you know, what are your thoughts on as a retiree is having to make a change, right? So, you know, let's say you got you get a lot of income from Social Security or a, a private annuity or a pension plan. Okay. What is the role of the income from your portfolio playing? And if you're someone that has like all of your essential expenses covered, you could take out maybe five or 6% a year from your portfolio. If you're, if you're that kind of, you know, 65 year old married couple mm -hmm. and someone might say, well, that's really high. Why, how is that? Okay. Well, I would say, Hey, well, you know, if, if you have to cut back and you can enjoy the money while you're younger in retirement, right? At the same time, though, if you're someone that, that really, if you look at, you know, how you're funding your retirement and and you really need that portfolio to cover, you know, expenses for most of your life, then it could be, you know, that that three or four percent because you can't afford risk in terms of having that value go down and not funding your lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I, I understand why everyone wants a rule of thumb, right? It's a very yeah. difficult situation. The industry is still grappling with how to help people sort of tap that nest egg. So I think that one of the things, I mean, there's different things. There's the RMD model, which the IRS uses, obviously. Um, there is something that you kind of told me about, which is just sort of using one over life expectancy. So, you know, tell, tell me some of, you know, if there was another sort of rule of thumb, what are some of the things that people should be considering? Yeah, so I mean, I I actually don't like the the fact that we call it the four percent rule because the problem, right, is that it's not a four percent withdrawal after the first year. The four percent right. only applies to the first year. So I think like a better it would be better to call it like the twenty five times rule. So <laughs> right. one divided by four percent is twenty five times. Okay, you need twenty five times ish is what it's suggesting your initial income goal when you first retire. That's really all it's telling you. I think that you know individuals that want guidance on ongoing withdrawal rates, you know, need other metrics. And so one of my kind of favorite simpler metrics is to say, hey, I think that you should, you should, you know, you're probably okay-ish with your withdrawal rate from a portfolio, if, you know, if it's less than or equal to one over how long you want the money to last. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it sounds an awful lot like the RMD rules. Um, I don't necessarily love the RMD tables. And so I think what, what a really good thing to do is to go out to like an online tool um, and say, hey, you know, give it some information about your health, wealth and all that. And this is you're going to live for, say, 20 years. The number, you know, one over 20 is 5 percent. 5 percent ish is a is a really good starting place for what, a, a, again, a rule of thumb would be for what a safe withdrawal for you from that portfolio is in that year. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So, I mean, I think that um, a lot of people are sort of 
fixated on that rate. And then, you know, one of the things that we've often been told is that retirees really don't want fluctuations in, in their, you know, yearly sort of draw. I mean, what has your research shown in terms of how retirees actually spend? So, I mean, there's actually like, uh, you almost don't even trust the survey results because the, 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 the spending volatility, you know, at least like in the health and retirement study is absolutely nuts. Um, I mean, you know, I know that everyone's different, but I think that I think one thing that is really important when it comes to spending in retirement is that individuals don't typically increase their spending every year by inflation. Mm. Okay, and this is and this why this is so important is is that you know virtually all Americans you know receive pension benefits, almost all receive Social Security. Um, Social Security benefits are are indexed to inflation. Right. Okay, um, you know some might say it's the wrong definition. Whatever they go up like every year. Okay. If you look at what your portfolio is doing in terms of funding your retirement, what happens most often is that those monies actually don't have to increase by inflation as much because you get those raises from inflation. And so like, like why this is so important is that, is that your, your withdrawal amount from a portfolio tends to be more nominal versus mm -hmm. indexed for inflation, suggesting that you can take out more earlier in retirement. So I think that's like a, a really common, a, flaw on assumptions that people use in financial plans, which is how the how the portfolio income has to change throughout retirement. Mm, interesting. Um, and I, I guess often retirees own their homes, right? Like they're not really dealing with inflation in terms of rent. Um, at least, you know, many aren't. I mean, how, I mean, do you have any thoughts on sort of how inflation impacts retirees? Because I think there's a lot of like angst around um, inflation in retirement. Yeah, so that like you know, I mentioned there's, there's all these different definitions of inflation. Actually, everyone has their own um, unique consumption basket. But like the most common definition of inflation is the CPIU, which is for urban consumers. Um, mm -hmm. It's funny that the social security benefits are linked to the CPIW, which is for clerical workers. And there's actually yeah. another definition of inflation called the CPIE, which is for elderly Americans. And you know, obviously, you know, someone that's older is going to consume things a bit differently than say someone who is younger. Um, to your point, housing is going to be maybe less of a of a piece, or at least the, the different factors of housing. Um, other things like healthcare will be a larger piece, and so I right. think that that you know inflation is very much a a a, a personal thing. But I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss inflation if you're a retiree because um, you know a lot of the things that you buy are going to cost more, um, and it can have a really pronounced effect on how much you end up spending, say, over a twenty or thirty or forty year retirement. Mm, okay, that makes that makes sense. Um, so I guess that the other just, you know, I think there has been research, and we may have talked about this in the past that um, retirees often are averse in spending um, principal, <laughs> they sort of want to just spend kind of what their, their portfolio gives off. I mean, is that does that corroborate with what you've been seeing in terms of spending patterns? Oh, definitely. So if, if you look at I mean, so how, like, how do you deal with an uncertain lifespan, right? If you don't mm -hmm. know how long you're going to live, um, it's really behaviorally difficult to want to deplete your savings because you you can't replenish the pot, right? If you if you retire at 65 and you spend too much and you get like super healthy and you're let's say you're 74 years old, um, your prospects for reemployment aren't very good. Yeah. So what you see is that a lot of Americans that have savings they try to live off of the income and leave that that portfolio level intact in case you know they do live longer than expected and i mean i, I get it that makes sense but it's not necessarily very very efficient and right. um i understand the uncertainties about how long you're going to live and you know 
one one solution there, right, is to, is to allocate more of your wealth to guaranteed income. Yeah. Um, the, the best place to get that, without a doubt, is delaying claiming Social Security. There's other strategies as well, like like buying a, a, a private annuity. But I think that you know, if you're not if you're not going to deplete your savings efficiently, you're not going to enjoy your retirement. Um, it's worth thinking, you know, are there other ways I can I can use what I've saved to fund my retirement than just kind of investing it in the stock and bond markets and pulling money off of um, based upon gains. So you mentioned annuities, which is always sort of uh, an interesting topic, <laughs> I know. Um, so just let, let's, you know, I think you say annuities and people have a certain impression of annuities, but what, what kind of annuities are you talking about when you're you're talking about sort of this retirement? So I think, like, I, I think all annuities can be good. I mean, at, at their core, right, annuities were have been around for thousands of years. Um, they provide a way for individuals to provide, get, generate income for life. Right. But like it, they're like they can be incredibly complex. Right. It's, it's hard to know, you know, which one you want to buy, you know, all this stuff. I think that, that for someone that wants, again, that likes this idea of more guaranteed lifetime income, the place that you should always start is delay claiming Social Security. Um, I just mentioned this. The reason is, is that is that, you know, the, the payouts for Social Security don't evolve based upon interest rates. OK, every other annuity out there effectively the payout from the annuity is going to be lower today than it has been on average because interest rates are lower. Right. Right. So Social Security, it's it's tax advantage. It's linked uh, up to inflation explicitly. There's there's thousands of every benefits. It is like the best place to go out of the gate to get guaranteed income. If you've already claimed, if you want more, you start thinking about about buying what I would call like a private annuity. And there's all different types of annuities. I think that that you know that you know if you want simplicity, there's there's immediate annuities. Um, there's these things called deferred income news, also longevity insurance. But, you know, unless you have an advisor that you trust, that's a, uh, that's a fiduciary, um, I think simpler could be better if you're trying to figure out what makes the most sense as part of your overall kind of retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Okay, a couple of things you sort of mentioned. So, you know, one of the things I think people are scared about are sort of long-term care costs down the road. One of the reasons that they sort of don't want to dip into that principle. I mean, how if you, if you have long-term care insurance, how does that change your withdrawal strategy? Well, I mean, it, it allows you to take more, right? Like the more risk that you take off the table with respect to like bad uncertain outcomes, the more that you can deplete your portfolio. Um, I think that long-term care insurance is really interesting just because a lot of folks that, that want it can't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been obviously significant increases in premiums over the last few decade or two. Uh, but I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a, a very viable thing to think about because if you look at surveys, Right. Like the, without a doubt, the top two fears among retirees are outliving their resources and having kind of significant health expenses later in retirement. So the extent that you can do things to hedge those, you should. Right. So if you want to if you want to kind of hedge away that risk of outliving your resources, you know, allocating more to guaranteed income is a way to do that. You want to kind of hedge out, you know, a lot of the risks about later later life health uh, health expenses. Um, Long term care insurance is a way to do that. So you mentioned Social Security and delaying it, which, you know, we often tell readers and then we often get pushed back on, well, what about tax policy? And, you know, what about X, Y, Z? So what about it? I mean, like, should should today's crop of near retirees be worried about uh, tax policy changing? And, and, you know, should they sort of get it before, you know, the going gets bad, I guess? You know, should they try to secure as much Social Security as they can? So, I mean, it's no one knows what the government's going to do. Right. But like older Americans vote very consistently. And I just have a I I just cannot imagine that they would cut grandma and granddad's like pension benefit. Right. But here's the thing. Like, you know, you know, 
I, I just I just can't, you know, if you look at what they've done before, right, it's always going to be a a, a phased in strategy, at least it has right. been in the past, where right. you know it doesn't affect current retirees or even near retirees, it's kind of pushed further out. So I think, you know, it, it, it is a risk, but the, but here's the thing, even even today, right, it, it still makes sense to delay just given where rates are and everything else is. Now, I mean, what's what, what's really important about Social Security, I mentioned this a second ago, is that is if interest rates rise, like the benefits to delayed claiming are not as strong. You could right. just buy it. But right now where rates are, it is like it is like an absolute slam dunk in terms of improving your retirement outcomes through delaying claiming Social Security. So at what level would that change for rates? Well, so I mean, like, so right now, if you say like, like the 10 year yields are like one and a half percent, you know, like if those get like, you know, like north of three or four percent, then, it. then it, it starts to erode the benefit. But we're a long way away sure. from being there. And then, too, what's really important is, is what is the real yield? So like, right. you know, like if, if maybe if if bonds are yielding, yielding five percent, but inflation's eight percent, well, then delay claim still makes a lot of sense because you have this explicit inflation hedge as part of the benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you know, Randall asked, to the extent that many mass affluent retirees may consider some annuitized income, how concerned should we be about sort of this growing role of private equity firms and insurance companies? So I, you know, I, I am, you know, I've always said, I think that, that insurance companies are like incredibly safe, right? So when you think about, about, you know, if you have an insurance policy, you know, the first thing you have is the assets of the insurance company out of the gate, right? Um, and even when they go into liquidation, which is very rare for high quality insurers, um, that doesn't mean you're going to lose any money because after that you have what are called state guarantee associations, um, which is um, just the simple fact that all the insurers doing business in a state have to make um, individuals hold up to a certain um, maximum um, if the insurer were to fail. And then on top of that, you have this kind of like implicit backstop of the industry. Individuals won't want to buy um, insurance or guaranteed products if they, they don't feel like they're guaranteed. Now, I, I, I say all that first because context is important. There has been kind of a notable shift in terms of um, how um, insurance companies are dealing with liabilities and, yeah. um, you know, in some instances, kind of reinsuring them. And I think that, I think that to me, what this suggests, if you're, if you're going to enter into a contract that is, that is very long-term, you know, so like for life expectancy, I think it does make more sense than ever to really go with a, a high quality uh, insurance company with a very high financial strength rating. Now, important caveat is even a lot of these higher quality insurance companies are starting to do some of these deals with private equity firms. Yes. So I think that it's definitely, you know, a, a point of concern that I'm going to be interested to see how that evolves over the next, you know, five or 10 years. And so where would the, I mean, like, what would you be monitoring? Because there is a lot of um, sort of angst about these, these moves and it's still early, I think. But here's the thing, like, like, like the problem with, with monitoring is like, it, it, let's say that you pick a company that hasn't done anything with that. Um, they can still do it, yeah. Right. So it isn't like it isn't like you can buy a, a policy from an insurance company and they, and they can't then engage, you right. know, in in the other activities you don't like. And so I think that you know, oftentimes you can focus on on some of the the, the mutual or the fraternal insurers um, that aren't that aren't being as aggressive. But I mean, there really are a lot of higher quality institutions that, that have been around for a long time that I think really are. A lot less risky than some of the newer insurance companies out there that are taking on clearly more risk. They have lower reserves. Um, that that could be a, a bigger problem if you know markets go south. 
Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so we, we have a question from James about advice regarding paying off a mortgage. How does that fit into this conversation about withdrawal rates? So, you know, you know, like I like the idea of, of, of paying down a mortgage, um, right. You know, like the most important question really is, um, you know, what is the interest rate, right. right? Um, you know, in theory, you should not pay down the mortgage if you feel like you can earn a higher rate of return in the market. Um, I don't, I don't totally agree with that. Cause like I get warm fuzzies when I prepay my mortgage, um, right. you know, you know, mortgage interest is guaranteed. Right. And you know, maybe if you just refinance, you have a rate that's like super low, but you know, your mortgage is, you know, three, it could be two and a half, three and a half, four percent. That is a guaranteed rate of return. And so yeah. that when you, when you view it from that perspective, it, it actually can be pretty attractive. Now, you know, homes are relatively illiquid assets. It isn't necessarily easy to kind of access cash from them, but you know, to the extent that your home is, is paid off, that's one less thing to worry about. Right, yeah. one less risk to worry about, and so that, like other things, it does kind of increase what you can pull from your portfolio from a withdrawal rate perspective. Yeah, okay, very good points. Um, so I think there's a lot of questions about sort of how you should be investing your retirement assets. So Catherine asks, what portion of a retirement portfolio can be in growth stocks? Well, so again, like you know, like again, I think a really good starting place for portfolios is that it's it's like let's say half risky assets, half safe assets. I would not put all of I would not put all of the risky assets in in growth stocks. I mean, like I probably wouldn't put more than a fourth in growth stocks. And and given where growth has gone recently, I, I would put less than that. So I mean, I would I I'm more focused on kind of value stocks, yeah. small stocks, international today, just given the the significant outperformance of growth um, over the last decade or so. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so you know, a, a question from David is so for the folks who have sort of stable funds in their retirement portfolios. Um, you know, which rates are in, in which rates are usually guaranteed? You know, how, how do you suggest we use these types of funds for the long term? Oh, so like stable value funds are products that are available in defined contribution plans. And some of these things are like absolutely amazing. I mean, some of these products have guaranteed returns that are three or four percent per year. And yeah. I, I think that like, you know, if you want a, a great place to put money, that's where you do it. Right. I think that, that they are for individuals that are like, it's a reason why you should potentially stay in your retirement plan after you retire. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, it, you have, you have access to often investments and strategies in a defined contribution plan, like a 401k that you will not have in an IRA. And perhaps one of the most important examples is a stable value fund. So yeah. um, I know, you know, if I, I love financial advisors. I used to be one, um, but there really are a lot of benefits to staying in the DC plan. So before you make that decision to, to roll out of the plan, which is effectively irrevocable, make sure it's the right one and make sure you're not giving up access to investments and strategies that you really can't get um, in an IRA. Yeah, it's a really good good point. Um, so Craig asks what your thoughts are on this concept of sort of practice retirement. Um, you know, we've we've seen this sort of exodus of people out of the workforce this year and the last year and a half. Um, you know, do you foresee more Americans working in retirement at least part time? I do. I mean, so the, there is a big disconnect in terms of the percentage of Americans who say they're going to work and those that do. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'd like to see that change. I mean, I, either, the, the one thing that there's tons of research on is that the moment that you truly retire and stop engaging, you literally start dying, right? And and I think that, that you know, everyone's different. We've all had different jobs, different experiences, but the, but the point that you can have, you know, an engaged retirement is is good. 
Um, for some folks, that might mean working for money. For some folks, it's volunteering. But I, I like the idea of, of trying on retirement because, you know, if, if you if you do quit your job at, I'm going to pick a number, age 64, um, your, your reemployment options are often not very good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the idea of cutting back or having a plan is better than just, you know, just saying, you know, retiring and then deciding, hey, I don't like this. What am I going to do now? I think to the extent that you can kind of ease into it and really plan things out, uh, the better. Yeah, it's something that we find a lot of people um, kind of encountering. And so it goes with this entire idea of flexibility, I guess, in retirement. Um, so we have time for a couple more questions. Um, so Steve is asking about the Build Back Better's impact on Roth and Roth conversions. I know this goes back and forth. Do you have any thoughts on sort of um, whether that backdoor Roth conversion could be eliminated? I, I, I'm shocked it's not. So you know, I, 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 do the, I do the mega backdoor Roth every year in my 401k. And I'm just, I'm just, and that's so what that is, is you, is you make after-tax contributions and then you can roll it into Roth every year. Effectively, now you're like max out. It's like, I'm going to just say like $56,000 a year. I, I'm just shocked that we're allowed to do that. I, I don't know why that, that is an option. So um, it, 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 I almost feel like it should go away. Now, I don't know what the final version will look like, but I, I would not be surprised at all if those strategies do. Okay. Um, and so then we've got people asking about reverse mortgages. I mean, do you think those are a good idea for seniors or something that they can at least have in that portfolio as they're thinking about their withdrawal rate? So they can be. I think that, that you know, people people see the home as like the asset of last resort typically. And so I think that, you know, I think it's, it's definitely worth considering. Um, I don't know that they're going to work for a lot of people, but like to the extent that you are, you are house rich and an asset poor, it can be a way to kind of access your wealth to enjoy and have a better retirement. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, Hal is asking about tips and crypto. Do either one of those belong in a retirement portfolio for folks who are near or at retirement? Um, I think tips definitely can, um, given the fact that they are an explicit hedge against inflation. And to the extent that you want to have safe income that's, you know, inflation hedge it would. Um, it wouldn't be a podcast without talking about crypto. Um, <laughs> I have very mixed feelings about crypto. Um, I, I'm not doubting the the efficacy of of cryptocurrencies in the future. It's simply a function of I don't understand how to value them. Um, I worry about mass speculation. So um, you know, maybe maybe do it for fun, but I would I would I would take pause before really allocating a big chunk of your savings in a, a crypto assets today. Yeah, we so we sort of touched on this a little bit, but like the the idea of how much stock you should have in your portfolio at the age of sixty five. I mean, I think it seems like we we've had a little bit of a rethink on that from the sort of the old you know own your age kind of situation. I mean, what what is your thought on that? So I'm like a I, I you know I'm about one hundred and twenty minus your age is a good starting point. Got it, got it. And tell me a little bit why. Um, I mean, because I think that like, so if you do 100 minus your age, that's only like 35 percent at age um, at age 65. Six that's just that's just not going to work. I think right now you have to have on some risk to kind of hedge against that longevity risk. Where retirement lasts 30 years, you have to have a decent slug in risky assets. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if you have a, a thought on this, but Mark is asking if you can comment more on variable annuities which have lost protection in the stock portfolios. Yeah, so like the problem is like annuities is a broad term. It's really hard to define it appropriately. I think that annuities can make a lot of sense, but you got to understand like how it works um, and how it fits in your overall plan. Mm, okay. Uh, well, there's so many questions. This is obviously a hot topic, but that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you for tuning in. Thank you, David, for being here. This was wonderful. 
Um, we hope you will listen to our next episode tomorrow, Market Watch Edition, Tips for Tax Smart and Effective Charitable Giving, no matter what your budget is. Market Watch's Mira Jagannathan will talk to Leslie Albrecht on how to maximize your impact when donating to nonprofits this giving season. Thank you for listening. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.